This is KCSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I am delighted today to have not one but two very special people with me here uh, at the Cafe Floor in San Francisco. Uh, I am being joined by Nadia Barhum, the one and only Nadia Barhum, in interviewing Rabi Alamuddin. I've promised you this interview for quite a while, ladies and gentlemen. It is happening today, and uh, Rabia is sitting right next to me on a rainy day in San Francisco. Of course, uh, no need to introduce him. Everybody knows he's a Lebanese-American writer. He's a painter born in Amman to, uh, Leb- to Lebanese Druze parents. He currently lives in San Francisco and in Beirut. He is uh, He's had uh, three novels and one collection of short stories. Uh, an award-winning writer, including the National Book Critics Circle Award and the California Books Award, both in 2014, and both for his amazing new book, An Unnecessary Woman. So let me begin by uh, uh, saying hello to Nadia Barhum. Marhaba, Nadia. I'm so happy you're going to help me interview Rabia today because I know you're a big fan. I am a huge fan. <laughs> um, I've read all of your books, actually. All yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, here is Rabia. مرحبا ربيع تتحكي لنا بالعربي بعدين بالانجليزي اكيد لانه مستمعينا هم بالبي اريا يعني كثير منهم بيحب يحبوا يسمعوا نتفت عربي وانا كمان انا كمان بحب اسمع عربي وناديا ويل بي كونداكتينج ذا انترفيو ان انجلش سو ليت مي تيرن ات اوفر تو ناديا اي نو شي هاز بريبيرد سم كويشنز ذات مين ا لوت تو هير اند ان شاء الله تو اور ليسترز So the first question I wanted to ask is um, about how you became a writer and you, I know you started publishing later in your life so I just wanted to hear more about uh, your path to becoming a writer and how. Well I've told this story so many times so it becomes a story more than reality in some ways. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I've always wanted to be a writer. When uh, I mean I remember when I was four my father asked me what I wanted to do with my life and I said I wanted to be a writer. Of course, at the time, writing was, uh, you know, writing Superman comics and Batman comics. But I didn't for a long time. I would, took a very circuitous route, which I think is great, you know, gives experience and all that. Uh, but how I started writing is being frustrated with reading uh, books that uh, did what I would say did not reflect my experience. Uh, and particularly during, you know, as an Arab or as a uh, gay man and during the AIDS crisis, and all that I was interested in that actually I read Ramsey's book after I read mine maybe had I read Ramsey's book I wouldn't have written mine because maybe <laughs> <laughs> <Baby>, thank you <laughs> um, so I guess something about that that's really resonated with me is reading your books has been part of you know that that reflection of my experience too in a lot of ways which has been so refreshing um, and and I'm I'm curious because of the communities that we live in and the kind of the stigmas uh, attached to certain subjects like gender sexuality even death I want to understand more about how you grapple with living 
between two worlds of you know the Arab world and the West and and how you're able to navigate those differences and 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 actually welcome both of them in different ways. It it was a good thing that I took a circuitous route and spent a lot of time because I remember when I first came to the U.S. I came to UCLA in Los Angeles and I was 17 and I was taken in by a group of Lebanese friends and I realized that I uh, almost spoke no English. I mean, I my English was fine, but my friends were all Lebanese. We did everything together that it got to the point where uh, I had no American friends. I was not involved in American culture to speak of, even though I lived here. So when I, uh, when I came for grad school, I actually made a conscious decision to leave Los Angeles. And I, you know, I went back to Beirut, I went to Kuwait and worked for a while, but then when I applied for grad school, I came here. And for a while, I did not have any Lebanese friends. And it was primarily to, you know, to be, see what it's like to be an American. But somewhere along the line, uh, the two integrated. And I don't mean it in that I did not become an American and or I did not become Lebanese. Uh, the dichotomy left because I became sort of my own person. I no longer care to listen to this or to listen to that. And I still, you know, like, uh, that to me is really important. When, uh, there's a part in Kool-Aid's and you know it was at that time specifically when I wrote in Lebanon I belong but I, I you know in America I, I fit but I do not belong in Lebanon I belong but I do not fit and I still feel that way in some ways because I neither here nor there but I'm at the same time both here and there and for me that's how I integrate it I don't know how it's done with other people but I don't particularly care what, you know, one culture says is okay or what culture says it's not okay. I have, I am my own culture. That's something that I love so much about your writing is how it's so un unapologetic and, and real and honest. And, and I think that oftentimes, you know, people from our culture are, are often trying to mask certain realities um, based on certain stereotypes that they face here in the U.S. or, or certain, you know, again, like taboos that are, are in the East. And uh, one thing that I noticed in Kool-Aid was the dedication to your father. And I think you wrote um, something about may you forgive me <laughs> again. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that and, and what that meant to you and, and, and also these interpersonal relationships that we have with our families and how that impacts how we present to the world. Well, let me go back a little bit. You're assuming that uh, I that our culture that is in the Arab culture allows certain things and not, but it's the same with American culture. Uh, it's it just they're different. What is taboo in one culture might not be in another, but there are a lot of American taboos that most people don't deal with. Uh, my dedication to my father is a personal thing, so I'm not willing to talk about that. Um, but my father and I had a very close relationship, and he. But for him, he was Lebanese and always was, and and not just Lebanese. He was a specific Lebanese from the mountain. To him, mountain life was what it was all about. So he never understood uh, that anybody who would not want what he wanted. Uh, but that is something that I do not know 
any uh, parent-child relationship that does not reflect that. Uh, you know, he totally he respected what I wanted. He he uh, was behind me and supported me completely. But for him, he would have much rather had I did everything back in you know I the village that I was from. Earlier, I was asking about the, the taboos and and whatever in, in Arab culture, and I'm totally aware that there's so many in American culture and so many stereotypes that we have to fight against as Arabs were the ultimate other right now in this country um, and and because of that I'm wondering first of all how you how you try to challenge those stereotypes um, and and when you're writing who do you imagine is your audience I don't think I consciously try to challenge stereotypes my existence is a challenge to stereotypes um, so you know like I I don't consider myself a political writer in the it's like I don't sit down to write something politically or I don't sit down to to challenge stereotypes but being who I am almost anything I do will be political almost anything I do will be a challenge to the stereotype so um, I sit in, in having a conscious decision to do to do something like that becomes I think uh, interferes in the story uh, and for me the story is paramount but I don't think I've written a story that did not challenge stereotype so it's a sort of a circular thing uh, who do I, my audience I don't know uh, I don't have a general I don't have anybody in mind and you know I don't write for Americans I don't write for Lebanese I don't usually I say that I write for someone like me um, somebody who likes to read and is interested in this kind of book uh, the joke always was that I write for someone like me who's younger much more handsome a little bit tall and really cute and really likes my work <laughs> Um, and then something else in in, a in an unnecessary woman, um, one of your main characters commits suicide, and in Kool Aids, many characters suffer and die from the AIDS epidemic. Um, so you write a lot about death in a different way, um, and I think in the U.S. we approach death in a very extreme and superficial way. And I'm just curious uh, if this is intentional that you're 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 thinking and talking through and describing and writing about death in a way that is much more real and realistic. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I try in many ways to write something that is more realistic, even though I'm not a fan necessarily of realistic fiction. I just think that the reading has to, whatever book has to make you feel that it is real, otherwise it will have not much of an impact. Uh, but I write about death a lot because, uh, you know, Yeats was the one who said, and I, I'm going to misquote, I know that um, there are only two subjects to talk about, sex and death. Uh, and I would say that there's really only one subject because sex and death are one and the same thing. Uh, but it, it is important. It's, I cannot see how you one could tackle any issue in life without 
looking at death in a realistic fashion. The trouble is that most cultures, whether it's in Lebanon or in the US or anywhere, um, they uh, all try to dismiss death or to talk around it. So there's always, you know, life after death, there's always, you know, martyrdom or, you know, going to heaven or whatever. But the truth is that death is final. And that finality of it is what drives most of us, consciously or unconsciously. In Kool-Aid, there's the recurring uh, vignette of four horsemen, the one red, one black, one pale, and one white. It, it feels a little bit like a play on the fate, the three sisters, the fates in Greek mythology, but I'm not sure if that's what the reference is, so I wanted to, to hear more what you had to say about that. That, that is a biblical reference. That's the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse, which, you know, they will ride together. It's in, in the Bible. There's death, war, plague, and Jesus. And then something else about the unnecessary woman that was really striking to me. It, it feels like it wasn't not written by a man and I want to know how you were able to authentically uh, represent and be the voice of a woman. It was not written by a man, it was written by me. Uh, I mean the, the trouble is that we think of as the separation of oh this is a man, this is a woman. That kind of dichotomy for me never really existed. I did not write a book about a woman, I wrote a book about Alia. So this book is Rabia writing about Alia. It's not a man writing about a woman. I do not represent all men. Alia does not represent all women. It's just a single person writing about another single person. The, my whole object of writing uh, in a character is making her real. Uh, I do not sit down and think, oh, how can I make this character real as a woman? No, I sit down to make it, how can I make Alia real, come to life? So uh, that's how it's done, you know. I don't know how a man would would do such a thing. I know how I would do such a thing, and that's a big difference. Shall I interject a question here? Rabia, your background before writing was in mathematics, engineering, and I wonder if you see this switch to writing as something that is continuous from that or completely separate. Does your background in math and engineering inform your writing today, or is it a completely separate uh, project and interest? Of it's not separate. It can't be separate. Uh, and I don't think I ever switched to writing. I just started writing. Uh, it's not like all of a sudden I can switch my mind off into something else. Uh, yes, of course, my, everything informs my writing. You know, I play soccer. That informs my writing. I'm right-handed. That informs my writing. I'm short. That informs my writing. Everything I do, everything I read, everything, everybody I talk to informs my writing. It begins to be difficult when we start being specific. Like, well, how does my mathematics inform my writing? That I cannot tell you. But everything I do, everything I am, informs my writing. And the other question I had, and this is, uh, was asked, I was asked to ask you this by several people who have read your book, especially, it seems, young men living in the Middle East who were able, through your books, to feel a certain sense of hope, a certain sense of a better tomorrow for themselves. If Rabia Alamuddin was able to do this in America and live as an openly gay man, why can't it gives them hope that one day they can do the same? How do you feel when you hear such uh, 
um, statements, and I've heard dozens and dozens, and I was sort of begged to ask you this question. Uh, it's funny because I, it makes me uncomfortable. Um, I can't be even begin to imagine that I'm an example to somebody. Um, but I also don't think it's about, again, I'm, I'm not being gay in America. I was gay in Lebanon. I'm, you know, I mean, actually, I, I sometimes joke I'm not gay, I'm grumpy. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it's not that, you know, I am something here and something else there, or I'm what I am. Uh, as sort of an inspiration or that somebody that is uh, beyond me because really uh, I have issues you know I never leave the house I'm at home most of the time I can't find a date you know all that lovely stuff so that anybody who looks up to me is I think you know you really you have to go out more uh, and this is not modesty it's that you know like everybody, I have my issues, and I, of course, think that mine are a lot more troublesome than most other people, and I envy most people. Like, you know, I, like people who say they look up to me, I look at them and say, but no, I would want to be you. <laughs> but no, I would want to be you. No, 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 no I would want to be you. I want to be both of you. You know, you have you have better taste. I would, you know. I don't know about that. I mean, I, when I read your books, it it does give me a sense of belonging that you know. Which is funny because I don't belong. Hmm. But because you don't belong, doesn't that create a belonging for us? Maybe. I, well, I again, I don't know how it would ex how a reader would experience my books because I'm not reading them. You know. Uh, but so I really don't know. But again, I. I have issues with belonging and not fitting in and you know being the sort of the outsider all the time so that, that anybody who has inspiration from that is, is I find strange and what is interesting is that I don't have that kind of relationship with any writer I have many writers that I admire uh, and I look uh, I you know think very highly of them but I don't get inspired in the same way by them you know uh, it's not that kind of relationship because again I it's for me I'm I guess I'm self-centered I could only think it's me and the trouble is all me who are the writers that interest you um, many I mean right now when I was talking I was thinking of Thomas Bernard because Thomas Bernard is a an ordinary cranky you know I want to say old man although he was old long before he got old and <laughs> You know, he attacked everybody. He was Austrian, and his books are uh, a just one long attack on society and his country and his friends and everybody. And I admire that so much. And I think now, you know, that's someone who did not care about approval. You know, he it's like he he basically was so critical that he did not care. And I think, oh, that's ins that's inspiring to me. But I never think of. Of, oh, you know, if he is like that, then, you know, I could be, because I'm in a different situation, and I, I'm different than he is. So, I never understood 
again, it's just different. We're all different, I guess. Any, any Arab writers uh, that kind of had an impact on you, perhaps growing up or now? Uh, not, no, not that many. I mean, I still say, you know, my favorite book is, is Tayyip Saleh, Season Migration to the North. Uh, but that's primarily because it, you know, this is, it stood for something. Uh, I like, you know, quite a few Arab writers, but no, none that would go like, oh my God. Uh, Tayyip Saleh's book was, you know, like a slap in the face. Do you feel that there is a vacuum and a, a gap in kind of cultural knowledge production of from the Arab world these days? Yes, but I also think there's a cultural gap in the American world today. Uh, but yes, in the Arab world, yes, absolutely. Our uh, uh, culturally, we are much more interested, it seems to me, in pop and. Um, I mean, just look at the universities, for crying out loud. The, all the universities are primarily now technical universities. We produce engineers and doctors and, you know, uh, the, those who are failures become, you know, businessmen. Uh, the whole idea of a liberal art education doesn't exist, but then it's almost disappearing here. So it's, it's not exclusive, it's just... It is fascinating to me how few people in, in our part of the world read or, you know, or go to museums. It's like, uh, I find it interesting what's happening in the Gulf now with all this money going into arts. But I, I truly believe it's not about the, that they're interested in arts. It's just that they believe the government and the rich people there believe that arts is an entryway into culture. Uh, this this ephemeral thing, but it's not actually culture that they're interested in. At least that's my interpretation of it. Another question I have is about language. So you grew up in the Arab world and, and you live here now in the U.S., but you choose to write in English, and I just want to know why and what kind of what's your relationship to language? Uh, I choose to write in English because it's the only language I could write in. I do speak Arabic, I do write it, but as you probably know, uh, the education, Arabic education in our, and particularly in Lebanon, is horrific. Uh, we don't care to teach Arabic in, in Lebanon. Uh, it is, it's like, uh, it's still to this day, like I watch my nephew and niece, they're not allowed to speak Arabic in school, they're supposed to speak French, uh, because that's the mark of sophistication, and it's a, you know, remnant from colonial times, except, uh, you know, our part of the world, Lebanon, and I don't, I have, don't know any other place. I mean, there might be. I don't know any other place that actually wishes colonialism to come back. Um, so no, I I was taught Arabic, but I was taught mediocre Arabic. Um, you know, I I can read it, but not really write. Even when I write an email to my mother or to my, I write it in English, and so do they. Huh. Which of your books have been translated into Arabic? Because the I one that was just banned, right? Yeah, please. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's funny because. Um, my first book, Kool-Aids, was bought by a publishing house uh, and was translated, was really badly translated. It never came out because the, pub the translator refused to put his name on the book. He was so terrified. And they wanted me to cut out any reference to, say, Syria. Uh, so I refused and it never came out. Um, then Hakawati was bought 
and I got an email from the publishing house because apparently they bought it without reading it. Uh, they got an email from the publishing house and that was in Dubai, I think. And it said, the translator says, no, I, the, my agent got the email. And it says, my, the translator said that the book has sex. We cannot do this. The writer will understand. Wow. Uh, so finally, I, the Divine, was translated. Um, and I, th I think that's my least controversial book. Uh, although, you know, I had one publisher said it's the most insidiously controversial book, and I agree with that. Uh, but it was just banned in Kuwait, yay! <laughs> uh, I mean, that, you, you were sort of very uh, uh, gloating that it was out on, on Facebook and other places. But don't you think, in a way, it's tragic that all these readers were Of course it's be, tragic, uh, of, of course it's tragic, but also, like, I mean, I grew up in Lebanon, and whenever something got banned, believe me, we could get it. Uh, the, the trouble is it won't be in bookstores, so people won't even want to know about it. But I think whenever there is censorship, one must get censored. Otherwise, you're, you know, you're just diddling around. Um, the, one of the biggest issues in our part of the world is censorship. Uh, and so to be censored means that I am doing something that is right. And that's a big deal. Uh, is, is an unnecessary woman going to be translated? Into it is. Arabic? It is going to be. It is being translated now. I don't know when it's supposed to come out, but it's being translated now. Yeah. Right, we look forward to, to reading. And that we're going in to Arabic. look forward to who's going to ban it. Which country this week will ban it? <laughs> who's next? You think so? Oh, the, the, the trouble with Saudi is they never have to ban. I don't think they allow like any literature in any way. <laughs> I mean, that's nice. the last. I mean, they're filled with all these references, and oftentimes I'm like, oh my god, how does he know, how has he read everything published? And I just want to get kind of your, how you, your process for including all those different uh, pieces of literature in your writing. Well, uh, I of course don't read everything. I, I know lots of people who read much more than I do, but I read specific things. You know, like I'm a different reader than most, so all, everybody assumes that I've read a lot. In the last book, I can tell you that Alia reads a lot more than I do because you know I you know I have not read any of the philosophers. Well, sorry, that's not true. I have read some of the philosophers, but not as much as she has. Uh, how do I include it? It depends. It's what I'm uh, writing about and if I can think of a quote or something then I remember where because I mark when I'm reading I always mark what I'm writing you know with with post-it notes so that I tend to be able to find where it is rather quickly. And which character that you've developed do you most relate to? Uh, that's funny. Um, different ones for different things. I think probably Alia is the most autobiographical, um, but I'm not as much of a recluse and I'm not as much of, you know, a reader and uh, I haven't, you know, withdrawn from life, but I kind of look up to her in some ways that I would like to be her, you know, to be able to withdraw and not care. Um, Probably then would be Sarah of either divine, you know. Then she's 
in in some ways, it, uh, I mean, I wrote Kool Aids and so, but Sarah was the first character I felt that felt real to me, like you know that I could see her, I could see her behavior and. Um, you know, so I don't know if I identify with her. Uh, Osama and Hakawati uh, was not. I mean, he has a lot of things in common with me, uh, but he needed to be a lot more receptive than I am. You know, uh, I because uh, it's you know it's the stories of other people. It's not his story. Uh, so no, we're not very similar in that sense. So I would go with Alia. Funny. Because I think I think achieving comedy and writing is one of the most difficult tasks possible. And yeah, I found myself laughing throughout Kuwait. Despite all the tragedy and suffering, you still you still find yourself laughing out loud. And I want to know, you know, is is that something that you're trying to do, or you're just unintentionally funny? Uh, no, I, I, one doesn't try to be funny because if you try, you fail. I think. Um, no, I, I don't try to be funny. I, I, see, there's something in Arabic that we don't have in English, which is what we say khafif uh, dam And that is a big deal for, for me, because the opposite is deal dam And that in writing is unbearable. So uh, I know, I mean, I know a lot of writers that are well respected that I cannot read because they're very serious. But at the same time, they're dealing them. They are. They are. It's unbearable. It's like you know. Please, um, you know. My first response is always get an enema. You know, just <laughs> get over it. Uh, so, so let let's just say I write as if I just had an enema. You know, it's not about being funny. Although it will come out sometimes as being funny, it's about being light, and I don't mean light as in airy fairy, but uh, you know, in the bleakest time, in the worst times possible, the only thing that makes us human is the ability to make fun of it. I I love that. Um, I, and just this a soft softball question: What what are you reading right now? I am reading a book called Conundrum by Jan Morris, who was once James Morris. Um, and it's actually, a, I'm reading it for the next book. Um, I like it quite a bit, actually. I was surprised how much it because uh, uh, she actually, when he wrote when she wrote the great book, she was a he, you know, as she wrote them as James Morris. Um, but, and then she had a sex change and became Jan Morris, and she wrote Conundrum. And she's a damn fine writer. So what I'm interested in is there's nothing in the, in the book, which is sort of a memoir, that is telling me anything new, except that the, it is so well written that I think it's, it's really lovely. On now? Uh, well, I finished the book, so I submitted it. You know, I think it might come out, I think, in November. Uh, but I'm considering a book uh, that, uh, you know, I'm going to use a lot of my work with Syrian refugees and see what happens. Are you allowed to speak about the next book or do you want it to be a complete surprise? No, I can speak briefly. It's called The Angel of History. Uh, 
and it opens with Satan interviewing death. We got so many good quotes today from Rabia and Nadia, didn't we? I think, you know, the enema quote to me is, is uh, tops it all. So, uh, you, you have a last question, Nadia, or so? I don't know how to wrap it up. Well, I do have a question from a friend. Do you need a blue-haired Syrian to translate your book into Arabic? Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, I, I would love blue-haired Syrians. Uh, unfortunately... So did I. <laughs> so did I. Uh, and I did mine uh, three blue colors, so it came out like a peacock feather. Uh, but no, uh, I'm not the one who does uh, translations. So, like, Unnecessary Woman was bought by uh, Dar Naufal. So Dar Naufal will find the translator. Uh, you know, like, if if he wants to translate a book or he she wants to translate a book she has he has to uh, find something that has not been uh, bought by a publisher so i think we got the rights to kool-aids back so he could try kool-aids or hakawadi but without a publisher it's almost impossible If you hadn't read blank book, uh, you wouldn't have become a writer, or might not have become a writer. Uh, V.S. Naipaul, A House for Mr. Biswas. Uh, primarily for a number of things. One, it was about a boy who was to become a writer. Uh, and I read it when I was 16. Um, so he, he, the way that uh, Naipaul looked at the world when in school, when I was in school in England at the same time, so it's a similar thing. It was all through, well, as a writer I would do this, as a writer I would do But what was also important about Naipaul for me was, this was the first time that I read a book about, for lack of a better word, about brown people, like me. That was, that we, from the third world, became the main protagonist of a novel. So that Naipaul, and why I will always love him, even though he's a big jerk. Uh, Naipaul is an amazing writer, but what was truly outstanding for someone like me is he basically said that my story is important enough, just like, you know, an American or just like a white Englishman or just like a French, you know, we... Uh, we could be the protagonists of a novel by Balzac or by, you know, or, and Najib Mahfouz did the same thing later. But for me, the first time was I was 16, it was Naipaul, that, oh, we are important enough. And that was a big deal for me. Your book was like that for me. Kool-Aid's was like that for me. It was the first time I picked up a book and I said, wow, this is the book I've been waiting for to read my whole life. And, and I think it's so important for us to have someone like you, despite the fact that you said you don't want people to, to admire you or whatever because you're just a regular person. But your writing has really trans been transformative in so many ways. And, and I want to thank you for that in a time when, when our narratives have been so co-opted and marginalized that it's just it's so refreshing and important to have, to have your work out there for us. Uh, thank you. I mean, again, my response for that is don't read my work. Go out and make your own narratives. <laughs> uh.
I like that, and I'd like to also join uh, the many people who are excited that we were interviewing Rabbi Alameddin today, including uh, uh, his, your, I'm going to just say it, your, your, your gay male fan club, who had all these questions they wanted to ask, and who want to say thank you for it. Could we, you tell uh, them, please, that the main question they always ask, no, I am not a virgin. <laughs> You heard it right here, ladies and gentlemen, on the Air Ology Show. It has been my pleasure today to sit with two dynamic people, Nadia Barhum, who has uh, who prepared these amazing questions for Rabia and who uh, was uh, looking forward to this for quite a while. And Rabia, of course, for being so generous with your time, with your, being patient with us, with two microphones in your face, mm-hmm. speaking very comfortably. Shukran, Habibi, for everything Tikram, you do. Hello. And shukran for your time and shukran for your friendship. Hello, Thank you. Thank you for having me.